Welcome to Boiling Point. One of the most iconic animals in Australia is the kangaroo. Today we are going to take a closer look at one of the least studied aspects of the kangaroos. Surprisingly, social aspects of kangaroo behavior have only been mildly explored, but their social behavior is affected by multiple factors. Our guest today will tell us how certain factors affect kangaroo social behavior, why it's important, and what we can learn from it. Listen into the story in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show, it's your host in training, Liz, and Boiling Point's regular host, Kat. Hello. Today we are chatting with Nora Campbell. Nora is a PhD student at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, and she is making her radio debut today. Nora studies kangaroos and their social behavior. Welcome to the show, Nora. Thank you. Excited to be here. Wonderful. So, Nora... Let's get started. What is a kangaroo? Most of our people probably know this, but what is a kangaroo? <laughs> no, it's a great question. So kangaroos are from the family macropod, which in Latin means big feet. And they can range from the size, from red kangaroos, which can be the size of a person or bigger, to the smallest wallaby, which is about the size of a rabbit. But I, I'm mostly studying eastern grey kangaroos, um, and they're one of the bigger kangaroos and one of the more iconic ones that you would see around um, New South Wales. Wonderful. Very cool. So, what actually, sorry, Liz, I have to throw a question in here because I've come across this question from people before that they say, ah, oh, so, um, but what does, like, does it mean a wallaby is a kangaroo as well, or but it's so much smaller? How do you, like, how do you differentiate there? I mean, there's no easy answer because, um, Like kangaroos are constantly, I mean, macropods in general um, are changing families and as genetic, um, you know, testing gets easier and easier. So a, um, a lot of the names are changing constantly. Um, what we do know is that wallabies are more related to some kangaroos than to others. So eastern greys are quite far apart, but red kangaroos, for example, are more related to some small, um, some medium sized wallabies than to others. So <laughs> oh, okay. not too sure I can give you a clear answer on that, but maybe in another 20 years. <laughs> That's Very cool. Awesome. So what exactly are you studying about kangaroos? So I'm looking at kangaroo social behavior and how that is changed um, under different selective pressures. So environmental pressures and also other social pressures. Very cool. So tell me about kangaroos and their like social network. Well, kangaroos behavior. have an interesting social structure in that they have something which we call fission fusion, where they're constantly fission, um, fissioning and fusioning, if that makes sense. They're, they're, leave, they're, they're forming and leaving small groups consistently throughout the day. And they'll do that um, pretty consistently. This is eastern grey kangaroos when I'm mentioning kangaroos because that is mostly what I study. Um, and so they have, they, they do have quite complex social networks because of that. And that's also why it can be traditionally quite difficult to study them. Very cool. So how do these social interactions uh, kind of change with their environment? Or like, how does the environment affect these changes? Oh, so in a lot of ways. So one of the biggest ones is food availability, which is in turn um, caused by rainfall. So um, as, as food becomes more or less available, kangaroos do mostly eat grass and small um, 
small plants. Um, they'll be, they'll have to range further away, which can affect their group sizes, particularly as they, they fuse into smaller groups and leave. It can be harder for them to do that if they're having to forage further away for food. Um, male kangaroos also tend to leave the populations quite often to go in search of new female groups to join. Um, and so that will often depend on the environment as well. And there's also things like predators, which can cause, um, you know, really huge changes in social behavior, as I'm sure you can imagine. Do you think that there's been any, been any effects like climate change and stuff that have also affected their groups as well as like human encroaching on where they live and things like that? Yeah, urbanization has actually been really beneficial for a lot of kangaroos. Um, so the numbers since European colonization um, have just jumped dramatically because, you know, when the Europeans came, they would level out all the fields into flat um, farmland, which kangaroos love. It's great for grass and also left um, huge tanks of water that they can just drink from. So kangaroo populations have just grown so huge during those times, which also um, leads to other issues like conservation um, of the kangaroos. So one of the um, the things that I've been studying was the year before I started my honours research, there was a huge drought and in the area that I was studying the kangaroos and that had caused the population to drop from about 60 kangaroos to 20. Um, and so one of my earlier parts of research was having a look at how the change um, in population size as caused by um, drought um, affected the kangaroo's social behaviour. Did they, um, so you said the population numbers dropped, did the, uh, like, did those 20, no, 40 kangaroos that disappeared, did they die or did they move elsewhere? Um, that's a good question. So it's sort of hard to tell, but we think they probably did die. The males were more likely to have moved elsewhere, um, but the younger juveniles probably did die because what we did was we we took a lot of I mean my supervisor did I was in high school when this all started but he's been going out and taking photos of individual kangaroos um, as many photos as he can each year and then what I would do is I would go and identify them and work out which kangaroos were in the population each year and from that I could work out um, whether they're leaving and joining the population and a lot of kangaroos males and females both but mostly males would leave the population and then come back we currently have eight years of this data but after the drought the most of the ones who left did not come back so a small proportion did as the population started to grow but especially the younger juveniles did not come back so we've got to assume that they died so with all of this why is this so important for us to learn about um, I mean, I guess the, the answer for me is that I think it's really interesting, <laughs> but that's never really enough to say why it's important. So kangaroos can be really good um, indicators of how the ecosystem is going because they're such a large conspicuous animal and they're also grazers, they're top order herbivores. Um, so by watching the population numbers rise and fall, you can sort of get an um, idea of how the vegetation is flourishing um, and how many predators there are and predators can often you know dingoes and foxes can be harder to monitor um, and there's also when you're going for um, things like uh, keeping population kangaroo population numbers under control which is a big topic at the moment um, you want to be able to understand how the social behavior affects the group because if for example you had a population of kangaroos and you thought I need to cull some of them. There's too many on my area of land. And you thought, I'll go after the, the large males exclusively. That will cut the population. It could actually have the 
opposite effect where the smaller males who would have escaped notice during that cull would then have more of a chance to mate with females and possibly create an even bigger population than happened before. So um, I guess anything you want to do with kangaroos, whether you want to conserve them or anything, you really need to know how the social networks work so that anything that you do can affect the kangaroos in unexpected ways. And you mentioned earlier that um, they... Uh, what was the word again? So in terms of their group structure? So oh, the fish and fusion social structure. That's right. So they come together in a group, but then they also leave again and disperse. So do they have friends? I know this is very anthropomorphizing, but like, do they have kangaroos they regularly hang out with and kind of meet up with and catch up with every time? Or is it random how they come together in a group? Well, that is something that's really only been studied very recently because one of the main problems um, with studying the social network structure is when you look at things like whether they have friends, you need to be able to identify each kangaroo individually, which I did through many, many hours of looking at photographs. Obviously, it would be easier to radio tag, but not easier for the kangaroo. Um, so... A lot of people would have said originally no, but there have been examples in other animals who do have similar social structures, so other large herbivores, some deer, um, that sort of thing. Um, the, the male alpine ibex, I think, as well, and they do tend to have long-term friends. There, there has been evidence of them that um, having friends that they would come back to, so that's actually one of the things I'm studying. Oh, nice. That's really interesting. And I feel like I'm um, talking about what's the importance of this. I could imagine that although there's always a risk of anthropomorphizing, but on the other hand, um, giving kangaroos, kangaroos a bit more depth in the public eye might also be a good thing, right? That yeah, absolutely. That people are not just like, oh, they're those brainless things that hop around, but they actually, they make friends. They, um, yeah, they have a complex social I life. I mean, people talk about like the herd mentality, but even animals like sheep have incredibly complex social structures that you just really need to look at closely to be able to understand. Nice. What has been one of the most interesting things you've found that, like, for for kangaroos? So, for example, like, was there something you you learned that... Um, like my research or just something I've read about? So something that you realized that, that, that hadn't been studied, what was the biggest hole slash, like, piece of knowledge that you learned about kangaroo that you learned that had not been learned about kangaroos does that um, make sense yeah i guess one of the one of the benefits of the way that i've been studying kangaroos by doing the looking at the photographs is that i've been able to track the kangaroos um and who they're hanging out with each year and that's every single kangaroo not just the females or the males i found that a lot of previous studies um, would focus generally on females because the more females in the population and they tend to be more conspicuous or just on the males depending on what the question that people were trying to answer was um, so I guess entire population dynamics, that's juveniles, young at foot, sub-adults, males, females of all different ages and sizes, isn't something that hasn't been so far exclusively studied. Why do you think that is? I think it's just the difficulty of um, being able to do it because you it's it's hard to do radio tracking with kangaroos it's incredibly invasive what you really need to do is be able to identify them all and there are groups in Queensland who are doing that just visually um, but they do mostly work with females um, and it's just that you'll need to be able to recognize kangaroos which is quite difficult and so you have to sink an incredible amount of time into being able to know which kangaroo is which and so if you can answer a question 
um, and it's going to be more useful to know about one specific group, I can see why you absolutely would just focus on that specific group. Mm. I'm very impressed, though, though I have to say, because um, I worked with kangaroos before, but I only had a small group and I did learn to differentiate them individually. But um, I can't imagine how this would be with a big group. And um, so you really, so you know, they didn't have ear tags or anything. So you just learned what their faces look like, basically, or Pretty how they much, moved. Pretty much, yeah. So we started out looking at the, the pattern the ear, that the ears make, so the ear tuft and the actual ear shape Um, and then as a secondary feature we would look at maybe the marks under the eyes or any scars that they had any chips in the ears particularly with the males Um, but that could also change depending on lighting so it was mostly the ear shape Um, and it did it was very hard at first but then the more I did it the the easier it got and I have got about 153 kangaroos no 159 in my group that um, I've identified and there is a group in I think the University of Queensland who has about 200 kangaroos that they can identify so it can be done it just takes a lot of time and effort that's very impressive (laughs) indeed very impressive so we now know why this is important so what can we learn from all of this Um, I mean, on the most basic level, we can learn that animals, even herd animals, have incredibly complex social structures that we haven't even begun to scrape the surface of, um, which is always something that I think is important to remember as scientists. Um, But we can also learn how, I mean, particularly with climate change, like you mentioned before, how these groups are likely to be affected by, you know, human impacted climate change, land clearing, um, which just can affect every single animal in the ecosystem, not just the kangaroos. Um, And I think we can also use some research into kangaroos to look at other um, herbivores um, and how their social structures um, tend to work, even though they generally are more studied than Australian animals. Still, that's really cool. Actually, um, kind of going back to what you mentioned when, like, with the land usage and clearing and how it basically made the population of kangaroos, like, explode what happened do you do we have any documentation like what happened to the rest of the animals because i would imagine that basically the kangaroos seem to have taken over instead of like some of the others yeah they're definitely one of the more urbanized um, animals if you go to somewhere like canberra they're just hanging out on people's lawns um you know just existing in every space they possibly can um as to what the other animals were i think some of the most the mo- most extinctions we've had have been smaller marsupials and mammals so um the ones that rely on burrows and tree sh- the ones that rely on shelter essentially and kangaroos do like shelter but they can have parks and they live in golf courses if anyone golfs <laughs> you'll know that they definitely love that sort of shelter so they can really thrive in open environments whereas animals that need um, more specific things just don't last as well and have um, become extinct in certain areas because of that wow very interesting okay so Kind of tangential, but very important. Like, why did you just decide to study them? Of all the animals, why kangaroos? I mean, I think as I think it's like this with a lot of people who are doing postgraduate research. But I didn't specifically choose kangaroos. I just sort of fell into it. So I, I when I was looking around to do my honors research, um, I thought that the supervisor I'm with now, Dr. Terry Ord, would be a good supervisor. And so one of the projects he was offering was kangaroos. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll just do it for a year and then I can change if I don't like it. And then when the time came to decide what I was going to do for my PhD, I was I was too far in. I had so many more questions that I wanted answered. 
So you were hooked, you couldn't I was get away hooked, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess now that's sort of my specialty, so <laughs> I'm stuck with it. Nice. Wonderful. Um, so now that we've kind of know what you're up to and things like that, what are your hopes for the future in your research? Um, well, I would love to work in conservation generally. Um, there is a lot of conservation work to do with kangaroos, but I think I'd be happy to do anything with any Australian species. And I think from studying kangaroos, there is a lot of crossover um, that could be done with other marsupials. But I would also be happy to take this kangaroo research further and just keep finding out more and more. Because even though they've been studied for so long, it's just shocking amount that we don't know yet. Is there a specific question that you'd like to study more in the future? Oh, you know what? There is something. And this is so inconsequential. I don't think I'll ever get the funding to do this. But when I was IDing my kangaroos from the photographs, one thing I noticed is that certain ear shapes um, were popping up more often than others. And I had my theories about who was the mother of the new kangaroo that had the ear shape and who was the father based on whether the ear shapes are. I'd love to know if ear shape is hereditary. And I mean, there's, that's probably not important. And I don't think anyone will ever pay me to do that. But I'm just so curious. I want to know. I think I can, because I was making guesses um, already, but obviously you can't tell. You would actually need to DNA test the kangaroos, which is quite an invasive procedure. I really love that how, um, well, I guess as a PhD student um, or as an honor student, everyone knows that, that uh, once you get into your topic, you start to discover so many little aspects that all of a sudden you fall in love with and then you really want to explore that. Although this is the point where it gets really hard to explain to your family, like, why do you look at this again? What What is the question? Why is that relevant? But oh, I just think the ear shapes are so cool. <laughs> exactly. But I love it that um, you're so passionate about that. That's and great. the first thing people always ask is, oh, so why are you studying that? And I think with the ear shapes, I could probably not have an answer. <laughs> Because I want to know who the parents are. <laughs> but on the other hand, we can always say uh, being a PhD student is being like a student, obviously, right? So it's like a way of just learning how um, how scientific research works in general. And um, But I'm sure there will be a practical application to that. Oh, I'm sure there's point. one someday. Yeah. Um, and I guess when you're looking at one specific topic for so long, you start to notice really small things that maybe other people wouldn't and small, small gaps like where the ear shape is hereditary. <laughs> Um, Nora, we talked before about, um, yeah, the fact that kangaroos, um, well, most species really benefited from urbanization and that they increased in population size. But then you also mentioned culling. So I guess the question is always, when is too many really too many? Like, when do cullings actually take place? Well, that's a very divisive topic. And I think if you ask different people, you would get extremely different answers. So a common misconception is that kangaroos directly compete with sheep and cows for grass and food and water. Um, but They a, don't? Well, I've, I found a <laughs> I was reading a study that said they only do during drought times and the rest of the time they just don't. So when, when we talk about kangaroo culling, um, Canberra, where I'm going to be doing some future research this year, um, they do tend to cull their kangaroos on a yearly basis. And they have a very specific way of working out how many kangaroos need to be culled. So they'll work out how many kangaroos already exist in the areas and what um, areas are being threatened by the kangaroos. So one of the problems is when kangaroo population numbers grow too big, they will just eat 
everything. Um, and so there are a lot of threatened species, plants, um, threatened plant species, and then animals that then rely on those plants that can be affected by this. And then on the, the side of the kangaroos, when they grow too large and then we have a drought, they will just starve to death um, if the population numbers get too big and then all of a sudden they can't be fed. And we do have in, in Australia fluctuating droughts that happen consistently every few years. Um, so in Canberra, they do tend to do a cull, and it's usually not that many kangaroos. It's just the bare minimum that they think will allow the grasses um, to recover in those specific areas. Um, and they'll also, yeah, so they'll calculate that every year. Um, and they'll also try other measures. So people are working on contraceptives for kangaroos to make sure that the um, you know, birth control... <laughs> <laughs> to make sure female kangaroos can't produce too much. Um, people are doing grazing uh, where they'll put cows in an area and make them graze down so that the kangaroos can't get too much. Or, I mean, yeah. Interesting. That is very sophisticated. I like that. <laughs> but that sounds a bit like, so you were talking about Canberra, but it sounds like every state does it differently and the regulations are differently and the definitions of what is too much. Yeah, there's different. really no specific um guidelines it's it's state to state city to city um some places it's not necessary uh some places it can be if the population numbers get too big both for the sake of the invasive species sorry for the native species and for the kangaroos themselves um and some people you know mistakenly think that the kangaroos are going to directly threaten farmers in which they sometimes do but also sometimes don't so it really what needs to happen because Australia is such a land of diverse ecosystems so much research needs to go into how kangaroos are affecting one particular area because kangaroos affecting a farm in a really arid land might be different from kangaroos affecting a farm in a really lush rainforesty area so I think the more we know about the kangaroos, the more we'll be able to say whether or not there are disproportionate numbers to their environments. That makes a lot of sense. And I know having worked in an arid area in uh, in Australia, I also heard that then the question would sometimes come up like, well, is farming and sheep farming viable at all? Like instead of being jealous of the kangaroos, oh, you're eating all the grass of my sheep. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't have sheep here, right? But I know this is a very controversial topic going into another tangent. So. Oh, no, it definitely <laughs> is. I mean, people have such mixed reactions to eating kangaroo. I mean, there's definitely positives. Kangaroos, I mean, ethically, because kangaroos can't be kept in cages, they're essentially free roaming until they die. So they are one of of the more ethical meats. Obviously, if you're vegetarian, you would feel differently. Um, <laughs> but for, for people who eat meat, and they also produce um, an insane amount less methane than cows will, and they drink a lot less water. And another thing that... Um, introduced European livestock will do is the hoofs of the animals will sort of tread the ground in and create um, erosion, whereas kangaroos are quite soft-footed on the ground and won't do that. So there are a lot of good reasons to eat kangaroo. Um, but then there's also other perspectives um, like traditional the traditional custodians of our land, the Aboriginal people, for some of them, kangaroos can be, for some groups, kangaroos can be um, a totem and a very important animal. So one thing we would want to do going forward before kangaroo um, becomes such a huge meat industry is to sort of work out a way we can keep it sustainable. Because while it's at the moment, it's definitely a lot better than beef. I think humans can overexploit anything <laughs> if we're given the chance. So we don't want to be given that chance. Kangaroo meat is also incredibly healthy. It's very low fat <laughs> and very high in iron. <laughs> and you quite like the taste, right? Yeah, I do actually. It's definitely got a gamey taste. If you've ever eaten venison, it will be something quite similar. Um, but 
I I do enjoy it. I think it tastes quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, and let's briefly talk about the whole hunting aspect. So um, you're the expert, but I've only heard a few bits and pieces here that it, again, regulations differ from state to state. And is it still true that um, I think in Victoria, for example, kangaroos are also hunted, but they're not actually allowed to sell the meat that they hunt? Oh, I'm actually not sure. So yeah, like you said, there's no strict regulation countrywide. So I'm sure in some areas, I mean, it is legal to shoot kangaroos on your own property um, and in most areas. I'm, I, I would think that if you're hunting kangaroos for meat, they would need to be hunted by people who had regulations attached to them. So I think um, you couldn't just sell meat commercially if you were hunting on your own land, for example, or if you were doing something by yourself. So it would have to be done commercially. Um, but yeah, I'm actually not too sure about Victoria. I've mostly done research within New South Wales, but I'd be interested to find out if that is the case. Yeah, it might have changed by now. I'm not sure. Mm, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, the whole kangaroo farming aspect. I find it so interesting that, well, as someone not having grown up in Australia, that um, it's, and I work with kangaroos, so for me it's pretty clear, but a lot of um, locals or a lot of Australians don't know that kangaroos are not farmed, right? Like it seems yeah, to be I mean, not very well known. kangaroos can jump very high, so you need one hell of a fence to keep them in. <laughs> and at some point, surely it's better to just let them roam and then, you know, hunt them quietly at night time than it is to to keep them corralled in an area the same way you would with other meats that we eat. Yeah, and in a way, in that way, it's a very um, yeah natural way of uh, producing meat, right? Because they had a hopefully fairly nice life, and then they get shot yeah. and um, get eaten. So it's yeah. I mean, much Aboriginal better. Australians have eaten kangaroo meat for thousands and thousands of years. So I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from them about how to sustainably and ethically harvest kangaroo meat. So thank you so much, Nora, for coming on the show. And this is Boiling Point, the weekly show on Eastside 89.7 FM. Thank you so much for being my guest and all the best for you and your fruity work, Nora. Thank you. Um, we will be back next week with a new story. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Bye. <laughs>